This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Welcome back to a new episode, and this is going to be an interesting one, as I am really, really tired. Um, had a horrible night's sleep last night, and I'm going to explain why. Why not? I actually wear one of those, um, what is it, an aura ring, aura ring, O-U-R-A, where it measures your sleep. I don't sleep all that much as it is, and I wear it at night just to have an idea of how much time I slept the night before. It doesn't do anything to actually improve your sleep, but it uh, scares the living shit out of you because you see how little sleep you actually get. So I wore it last night. The problem is, is that I only received one hour and 17 minutes of sleep last night. True story. And it was a, a, due to a confluence of events. Uh, first thing is I'm a Duke basketball fan. I went to Duke Law School. And we had a game that started very late last night, about 9 o'clock. And it was uh, the winner would get into the final four of the NCAA championship. And we beat Arkansas. It was a, a great game, wonderful game. Game ended around 11. But then I had to actually watch the Nets get cut down after you win the championship. And that would be the Western Regional Championship. You have to cut down the Nets. Everybody has to go up on a ladder. They take a piece of uh, net off with a scissor and they wave it and it takes a long time. Then they had interviews and there was confetti and I had to watch all of that because as a, a college basketball fan, as a Duke fan, this was a pretty big highlight. We haven't been in the final four since 2015. It's been seven years. So I had to celebrate, you know, it was hard work winning that game last night. It was exhausting for me to have to win that game. Anyway, I was really jacked up. And, and after it was over, I had to then read about the game, read every article, every comment that was made from every Duke fan on every online chat board. I had to uh, read every last word. I just couldn't fall asleep. I was too, you know, really just too excited. But the other problem that really uh, that ruined the night's sleep, any chance I had to sleep, you're thinking, well, why don't you just sleep late? get all your sleep and well, here's the rub. I had to set my alarm for 5.35 a.m. Why? Because I'm planning a Disney trip uh, about two months from now and I had to make reservations for all the restaurants. And you're thinking, well, why do you have to do it at 5.35 a.m.? Well, people that go to Disney are insane. And Disney opens up the reservations for the day of your vacation about 60 days in advance. And it's exactly at a time at around 5.45 a.m. If by 6.15 you haven't made the reservations, they're all gone. Two months later, all gone. And the food at Disney, for the most part, sucks. It's nothing really particularly special, but each, each restaurant has a theme and it's cool. One, one time you're in space, uh, another time you're at a, a, a 1950s science fiction drive-in movie theater restaurant. Another one you're in like your uh, grandmother's kitchen. And, you know, uh, when you're a, a very immature uh, middle-aged man like me, these are the kind of things that are interesting to you. And uh, so I had to deal with that as well. And it was making me so uptight when I finally got to bed, knowing that every minute that I stayed awake was reducing the amount of time that I would have to sleep. Well, it made it impossible to sleep. I finally fell asleep at about 4 a.m., and the alarm went off um, about an hour and a half later, and uh, I felt like my head was about to explode, and I made my way to the computer to start looking for restaurants. And it's a, you know, a very big competition because you know every slob from the Midwest that is going to Disney is doing the same thing that I'm doing, you know, the slob from the East. 
So Disney is such a pain in the ass. That's what I was thinking as I was sitting there and I couldn't even keep my eyes open. I, I get online and of course it doesn't open up at 545 like it's supposed to. And I'm refreshing and I'm refreshing and I'm refreshing over and over and over the page. And I got an hour and change of sleep. I mean, I'm dying. I'm, I'm a grown man. And this is what I'm doing on a Sunday morning. And anyway, it finally lets me start making some reservations and all the stuff that I want, all the restaurants, they were gone. Instantly just gone. I mean, I, I got a few restaurants in, mostly the garbage ones at garbage times. Um, but, you know, I did all that work just to get into these crappy restaurants. And the worst part about this is that this is the second time that I've had to do this in the last two months. And you ask why? Well, I'll tell you why. I was scheduled to be in Disney World this week right now. But one of my boys got COVID like on Monday night and we had to cancel like two days in advance. So I've done all this before. I've made these reservations. I've changed them 600 times. I did it in January. I had to cancel them all this week and redo it the entire trip redo it anyway so i finished i i, I gave it my best shot this morning till about 6 30 a.m and then i went to bed set my alarm for 8 55 a.m to call up why why did i have to be up at nine o'clock after not getting any sleep last night well i'm spoiled and i wanted a private guide for one of the days at disney now a private guide allows you to go to the front of the line. You have seven hours. It's a seven-hour minimum. You go with your party, and they take you to the front of every line, and you don't have to wait on these lines. I'm not waiting in line for Disney. Every decent ride is 90-minute waits, 120 minutes sometimes, 65 if you're lucky. It's hot as hell in Florida. It's really hot, and it's really humid. I'm not going to die on one of these rides. I don't want to die. I'm not going to die for Disney. But if it's 95 degrees with 99% humidity in June in Orlando, and I've got to wait every ride in the sun an hour, hour and a half, I'm going to have a stroke. I don't want to stroke out while being on the line for the Seven Dwarfs Mine Ride. While some fatso in, a, in a, one of those scooters runs over me. I don't want that. And scooters are big at Disney. You can go an entire year in your life in the real world. Okay, just think about this. Think about your life. Last year or so. Do you remember, do you recall seeing an obese person riding around in a scooter on the street? Just riding around because he's too fat, can't walk? You don't see that kind of stuff. Doesn't exist in the real world. Doesn't. People that can't walk in the real world, they stay shut in their homes. All right? They don't ride around the street in scooters. You go to Disney, and you better watch your toes, man, because there's hundreds, hundreds of these grossly overweight people. You know, I, I presume that they're immobile, which is why they're in these, these scooters racing around. And it's tight in Disney, man. It's a lot of people. They got to cram all those people in because they got to make money. Liberals got to make money. They're going to be walking out because uh, they don't like the law in Florida because they think that it's anti-gay. They got to make money from you so they can pay those people not to work. Now, I'm all for the rights of the disabled. But if again, if you're so fat that you're so immobile, 
why the fuck are you going to Disney World, which only has like 10 million people crammed into it every day? You can barely breathe there. And you want to be in a scooter with no room to navigate and eat your gigantic turkey leg at the same time. You know, those big ass turkey legs that they sell. It's like, you know, like that uh, thing they put on the side of Fred Flintstone's car at the beginning of each episode and at the drive-in movie theater. And it ended up, it was so heavy that it, it, it tilted his car over. That's like what one of those turkey legs look like. Maybe just stay home. All right. Maybe find a place to vacation which doesn't involve you knocking people over with your scooter in a crowded place. And now that it's post-COVID, Disney is doing everything they can to squeeze every nickel out of you to make up for their losses. Every price is raised. The place is so expensive. Regardless, I ended up getting through at 9 o'clock this morning, and, and naturally those people answered the phone. I only had to wait on hold for about eight minutes. And uh, I couldn't take a chance of not getting a private guide one day because I'm not waiting in lines. And the other days that I'm there, I'll just chill. I won't be worried. I won't have the pressure to be on these rides because I'll do it all with the private guide. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, why is it that there were so few people on hold this morning for that call? I suppose because only an idiot spends so much money to get tortured to have so much fun. Now, they happily took my money this morning, but the price has skyrocketed just in the last couple of months. It's seven hour minimum. It's $775 per hour. That's what you got to pay. You got to pay like 5,500 bucks for the day. And that doesn't include your tickets. That doesn't include your food. You could fly to Rome and spend a better day there with the money that it costs to get to the front of the lines at Disney for a day. The amount of work and suffering that goes into a Disney trip is just mind boggling. All this suffering just to have fun. Anyway, so I'm tired. Uh, I'm warning you now, so just just deal with it, I guess. Let's go on to some subjects. Uh, this Justice, uh, well, now, soon to be Justice Kintanji Brown-Jackson. Right now, she's just Judge Kintanji. I like to call her Jumanji, that movie, Jumanji, uh, Justice Jumanji Brown-Jackson. She's the D.C. Circuit a judge who Biden nominated to fill Justice Breyer's spot on the Supreme Court. He's retiring. And I want to just make some points, just to you know, make some sort of obvious points. First thing, Joe Biden did a major disservice to this woman at the outset by saying that he was nominating a black woman for the for the position. All that did was cause people to think that she wasn't as qualified as uh, you know any other justice that, that he could be picking. That she's got like an asterisk. That she's just an affirmative action hire. All those things may be true, and, and very well. It could be true, but he just should have just nominated her and shut his mouth. But he couldn't because he needed the black voters when he was running for president last year. So he needed to pander to the blacks. So naturally, uh, blacks are doing horribly under Biden due to the runaway inflation, the rising costs, unemployment numbers. But Biden uh, uh, somehow gets their support. I, I just don't understand that at all. Anyway, back to Justice. Uh, Kentanji Jumanji Brown Jackson. She was a federal public defender and will be the first public defender in the Supreme Court since Thurgood Marshall. Now, this seems to offend the conservatives. This is, it's astonishing to me about how dumb people are and how dumb the press is. It really is, it's just astonishing. It, it, this is offending conservatives because they feel that you can't be fair. You can't be a fair Supreme Court justice unless you're really tough on crime. That's just how it is. In their minds, Really tough on crime means you have to have been a prosecutor. 
not a not a public defender like this woman uh, was. But here's the hilarious truth that defense lawyers know in New York. Federal prosecutors are liberal. Nearly every one of them that I know is a flaming leftist. The federal prosecutors, they're all Biden supporters. They were all Obama supporters. And I'm not saying that public defenders and defense lawyers aren't leftists as well, because they are. Nearly all lawyers are. It's just this profession is just filled with them. Just a disgusting profession filled with the most far left people. Regardless, though, why should the Supreme Court be filled only with former federal prosecutors and no defense lawyers? Only 8% of all federal judges in America are former public defenders. This is why sentences, sentencings in federal court on average are pretty severe in America because all the judges are former prosecutors. And how can Republicans get pissed that this uh, Justice Jackson, or soon to be Justice Jackson, now Judge Jackson, how can they get pissed that she represented criminals and one of the Guantanamo Bay terrorists? I mean, she was a federal public defender. That's her job. Do we not believe in constitutional rights for all of the accused, all those that are targeted in federal investigations, or or just Donald Trump and his family are allowed to have uh, defense lawyers? Be thankful that Judge Jackson actually feels strongly about the Constitution so much that she's willing to defend everyone and anyone, including a terrorist. Now, she was a district court judge. That means that's, that was like the trial uh, court level in the federal bar from 2013 to 2021 in the District of Columbia, which is a, a pretty liberal district, which means that they're more lenient on average with criminal defendants. Now, in a majority of the cases, her cases reviewed when comparing defendants with the same offense levels and criminal history, Judge Jackson's sentencings were at or above the median for that district. So she actually was slightly tougher than the average lefty judge in uh, the D.C. bar. But sentences uh, sentences within her district were generally below uh, those issued by federal courts nationally. So, you know, that's just how it is. As I said, liberal court, two-thirds of her sentences that were reviewed fell below the median sentences that were imposed worldwide. And not worldwide, nationwide. Now, the big deal was about how she handled pedophiles. That was all over the news. And I suppose I watched it and it it drove me crazy more than it would the average person. Because I actually know what goes on with lawyers, with judges, with the law. And it was painful to watch these senators. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they think they have all these gotcha moments in child porn cases and in cases in which there was no mandatory minimum for offenders, Judge Jackson handed down sentences that were about one to four years shorter than what the prosecutors requested. And of course, they were just freaking out about that during the uh, confirmation hearings. But that's not really abnormal. Prosecutors ask for pie in the sky numbers at sentencing. And I can't think of any time in recent memory in a federal sentence in which a client of mine received the sentence that the government recommended in a federal case. Now, in child porn cases, Judge Jackson's sentences generally fell below the sentencing guidelines. And I've talked about sentencing guidelines before. They take into account um, the the crime, any adjustments uh, for uh, how people are hurt or the number of victims or the number of photos or if the person was a leader in an organization or was a minimal participant whether they accepted responsibility with a a guilty plea, all those things impact the federal sentencing guidelines. But her sentences generally fell below the sentencing guidelines that are computed, but that's not really unusual for child porn cases. 
a report that was published by the Sentencing Commission last year found that federal judges across the country typically issue sentences below federal sentencing guidelines in uh, child porn cases. It's the truth. I mean, it's very rare that you even get a a guideline sentence nowadays because the guidelines are no longer mandatory. They're just advisory. During 2019, child porn defendants received below guideline sentences in roughly two-thirds of cases. On average, judges issued prison terms at least two years shorter than the minimum term called for by the guidelines, two years less. And she was lower on its sentencing than the national average. As I said, two-thirds of her sentencings in all cases fell below the average nationwide. But as I said, she's in the D.C. federal court, and it's a liberal court. Of course, unless you're a January 6th defendant, and then, of course, it's a hanging court. Now, judges oftentimes sentence below the guidelines for child porn cases, as I said. And the reason is that these guidelines were drafted in 1984. And in 1984, there was no internet. So in order to get these photos, you had to like send away for them by mail. You had to make a lot of steps. You had to really get after it. Now it's, you know, decades later, Congress added sentencing enhancements and created new mandatory minimums in jail, which were intended to be used for the most serious of offenses. But technology, as she said, has become more sophisticated, making the harsher penalties that are applicable in many child porn cases and rendering some of the uh, sentencing provisions really unrealistic. As she said, in comes the internet, and with one click, an individual can receive or distribute tens of thousands of images. And what she said is, you can be doing this for 15 minutes, and you're looking at 30, 40, 50 years in prison. That's her quote. She sounds like a defense lawyer as a judge. And that's what she was. She was a defense lawyer. So it was strange for me to hear her say those things just because I'm not used to that with judges. All the judges I deal with, 95% of them are former federal prosecutors. I also thought that it was a little weird which, that she said uh, with regard to an 18-year-old who was convicted of child porn possession that he wasn't a pedophile and that his victims were his peers, even though they weren't. And she apologized to him and his family. This defendant, his name was Hawkins, was an 18-year-old senior at a public charter school at the time he committed his offense, and he pled guilty to uploading online and possessing on his laptop videos and photos depicting prepubescent children engaging in graphic sexual acts. Those are not his peers. So I don't know what the hell she's talking about. That was weird. I mean, I'm a defense lawyer, and I thought that was weird. The problem, uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, the problem is that the court record in that case included excerpts from a psychological assessment of the defendant that concluded that this Hawkins, this defendant, was drawn to child pornography as a, quote, way for him to explore his curiosity about homosexual activity and connect with his emotional peers. Now, this was clearly a psych... First of all, that's complete and utter bullshit. This was a psych assessment done by a defense lawyer. What, What does it mean? You're watching little kids being forced to have sex? And that puts you in touch with your, you know, homosexuality. I don't even know what that means. But as a defense lawyer, you can get an expert to say anything. And you're doing that in advance of the sentencing. So you're having him, your client looked at by a shrink who writes up a report and you basically tell the shrink, you know, this is what I'm looking for. And they give you a report. And if if they can match it, they do. If they can't, you get somebody else. So you can get them to say anything. 
But in this case, the prosecutor didn't dispute the assessment in their sentencing memorandum and, you know, that, that it was uh, just a way for him to, to explore his curiosity about homosexual activity. They didn't even dispute it. And they also described uh, the defendant Hawkins as cooperative. So, you know, you want to blame the judge. It's hard to blame the judge when the prosecutors themselves uh, spit the bit here. You know, I, I was surprised. Now, Judge Jackson also said that a child porn, another child porn defendant, wasn't in it for sexual gratification, was not sexually motivated. She said that uh, sometimes people that are convicted of, of possessing child porn are in this for either the collection or the people who are loners and find status in their participation in the community. Now, I collect a lot of stuff. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. For their collections? Who collects pictures of, of, little, of little babies having sex and being exploited, abused? No idea what she's talking about. Why, why is she making excuses for pedophile? That's weird. Judges don't do that. She also said that another lenient sentence that she gave to a child predator, she gave it to him because, quote, he presented all of his diplomas and certificates and, quote, had gotten into this in a way that was, I thought, inconsistent with some of the other cases that I had seen. She said we should be rational with people who have received or distributed thousands of images of child porn. Most normal people are appalled by this, just so you know. I mean, if you're normal, you're appalled by this, but she speaks like a defense lawyer, as I said, because she was a defense lawyer, not a prosecutor. And, and Josh Hawley, is, uh, the senator, is acting like only one side of the coin, the tough-on-crime side, should be seen in, in justices in the Supreme Court. It's just not how it is in America or in the American judicial system. The Supreme Court can have a liberal censor on it, and, and they're about to have one. And I'll talk about my own case. I've described this in one of my former podcasts where I represented someone who was convicted of raping four little boys, and I got his 27-year sentence vacated. Now, I was nauseated by the crimes that he was convicted of, but I was also nauseated by the fact that he didn't get his constitutional rights to a fair trial. He didn't have a competent defense attorney who put forth a very viable defense that he had. It sucks as a member of society to watch this, I, I'm sure. But if you want the government not to go overboard, overboard when they're investigating and prosecuting people, including you, you need to keep them honest and ensure that everyone gets their fair rights, even if it makes you want to puke. Now, of all the crimes, uh, I've had clients been accused of everything, murder, terrorism, rape, fraud, you name it. I can at least understand where their heads were at the time they committed the crimes. I can at least understand why they did it. I can't when it comes to child sex cases or child porn. I just don't get it. I, I don't understand how anybody could be, you know, turned on by that. It's just so bizarre. Now, keep in mind also that Judge Jackson, she was elevated to the Federal Appeals Court in the D.C. Circuit just last year. As I said, she was just a regular district court judge, a trial court judge, and then she got elevated to the Court of Appeals just last year. She was confirmed with support from both parties just last year. So she was okay on child porn apparently last year, but not this year? Where were the Republicans last year to fight against her? Oh, because the Supreme Court is more important, that job? Well, you know, if you're a good judge at one level and they think you're good then, 
Why do they think you're not good now? You can't have it both ways. And, and to any Republicans who complain about Judge Jackson, who's about to be confirmed, you can blame your hero, Elmer J. Fudd. I, I mean, Donald J. Trump. He was the one who told Georgia Republicans to stay home and not vote in the two Senate elections, which occurred right after he lost the White House in November of 2020. Had either of those Republicans won that race, the Republicans would hold the Senate with a majority. With both of them losing, it's now 50-50. And Vice President Kamala Harris breaks the tie every time. So blame Trump. Do you think that the Democrats go so far left with Judge Jackson unless they knew they were getting her confirmed because they had the votes? If it was uh, 52-48 Republicans, don't you think they would have had to make a concession to get some Republican support and they would have nominated someone more moderate? Of course. This is Trump's fault. And, and by the way, speaking of, over the weekend, Trump was in Georgia again, and he was blasting Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp. Why? Because he refused to overturn the 2020 election results. This is two years ago. Trump called Kemp a rhino, a liberal. These are all things that Trump is and was. Trump went from being a liberal Democrat in New York to somehow he's the paragon of conservatism in America overnight. He's liberal on health care. He, he, as president, he signed the First Step Act into law, which reduced the sentences for many crack dealers who are in federal prison. Obama didn't do anything like that. Trump is also pro-choice. He changed that overnight when he wanted to win an election. Trump said over the weekend that if Kemp wins the Republican primary, his supporters will sit home again and not vote for Kemp in the general governor election against Stacey Abrams. Somehow, none of his supporters got pissed about that. The reason why we're going to end up with very possibly Governor Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia is the same reason we've got two Democratic senators from Georgia, because Trump told his supporters to stay home. That's why Judge uh, Kentanji Jumanji Jackson is getting confirmed, because of Trump's interference in the last two Georgia elections that mattered, the Senate elections. Because of Trump, we're getting a justice who couldn't define what a woman is. Think about that. This is where we've come to in our country. A judge can't define what a woman is? A judge. It used to be so easy, wasn't it? You know, you had female sex organs. You were a woman. You had a penis hanging off of you. You're a man. You've got uh, female chromosomes. Woman. Male chromosomes. Man. Very simple. Now you can have a, you know, you can have a kibasi, uh hanging down your leg and you can still be a woman. Liberalism is a mental disorder, period. Now, speaking of, uh, we're on the topic of Supreme Court. How about Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia? Ginny, that's what she goes by. Who knew? I didn't know that Ginny Thomas was a nut job. After Trump lost the election, Ginny Thomas, apparently she has access to the highest levels of the White House. This is the Supreme Court justice's wife, Clarence Thomas's wife. That's like an independent body. They're supposed to be independent. She sends numerous text messages to uh, then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urging him to continue in the fight to overturn Biden's victory so that Donald Trump could remain in office. Quote, Help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. 
the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history? Jesus Christ. Meadows responded, quote, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. That's what he wrote back to her. Ginny Thomas replied, thank you, needed that. This plus a conversation with my best friend just now. I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. I mean, this woman sounds like she's drunk. There was 29 messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows. The first one was sent on November 5th, two days after the election. She sends him a link to a YouTube video labeled Trump's Thing with CIA Director Steve. I can't even pronounce his last name. It looks like P-Zinc. The biggest election story in history, QFS blockchain. This former State Department official on this video is a far-right commentator who has falsely claimed that the Sandy Hook massacre at the elementary school in 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, was a false flag operation to push gun control. Okay, that's, that's who she's sending to Mark Meadows. She also wrote to him, Watermarked ballots in over 12 states have been part of a huge Trump and military white hat sting operation in 12 key battleground states. Apparently, during that period after the election, supporters of the the QAnon, that extremist ideology, they embraced this false theory that Trump had watermarked mail-in ballots so that he could track potential fraud. Watch the water was a refrain in many of the QAnon circles at the time. Watch the water. Of course, it was completely fake. It just was more bullshit. On November 19th, Ginny Thomas talked about her support for that lunatic lawyer, Sidney Powell, in a text to Meadows. Mark, don't want to wake you. Uh, Sounds like Sidney and her team are getting inundated with evidence of fraud. Make a plan. Release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. Thomas wanted, apparently Ginny Thomas wanted Sidney Powell to be the leader of the Trump legal defense. That's what she was writing about. Now, this is the Kraken. That's that mythical sea creature monster. That's what crazy Sidney Powell was referring to in her massive but fake investigation of voter fraud. Now, I have no doubt that there was fraud that occurred. I mean, you have to be insane not to think so. But the stuff that Sidney Powell was writing was just complete gibberish. She never revealed the Kraken. And now she's being sued for billions of dollars for slander by the electronic voting machine company. You know what a defense to a, a lawsuit for slander is? The truth. Somehow, Sidney Powell did not release the Kraken. We're still waiting for that. So Powell gives this press conference with, uh, with the Republican National Committee, and she's got Rudy Giuliani by her side, and he's got his hair dye is literally rolling down his face during the uh, press conference. And Powell was criticized for spreading a false theory about electronic voting machines as a tool for communists. If you can believe, Trump aides were actually horrified by her and Juliana's performance, and they felt that uh, the two of them had embarrassed Trump by becoming like a parody of his post-election fight, I suppose. And after that humiliation, I mean, Trump, who knew he was capable of being embarrassed? He gave his blessing for Giuliani and another Trump lawyer, this Jenna Elfman Ellis, to issue a statement claiming that Powell is not a member of the Trump legal team. 
So imagine being so dumb that you actually get kicked off the Trump legal team. Jenna Ellis, by the way, might be dumber than Sidney Powell. Uh, she was uh, she got fired when she was a prosecutor. Her first legal job, like, I don't know, in the middle of nowhere, Colorado, maybe. I mean, she claims that she's a constitutional law professor. She's not. She's just a clown. But if you say what Trump wants to hear, that's all he cares about. Now, on November 24th, after the election, Thomas, Ginny Thomas texted Meadows again, and she shared a video from Parler, which is that conservative social media website. And it appeared to refer to uh, Glenn Beck, uh, that mental patient, the conservative uh, commentator who used to be on Fox. Quote, if you cave to the elites, you have to know that many of your 73 million feel like what Glenn is expressing. That's what Ginny wrote. She said Trump risked his supporters growing disenchanted to the point of walking away from politics, she said. Me included, she wrote. I think I am done with politics, and I don't think I am alone, Mark. Oh, no, Ginny, no. Meadows replied three minutes later, I don't know what you mean by caving to the elites. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to read any more of this, but how does Clarence Thomas, first of all, how does he put up with this? How does he not dress this woman down? Just dress her down, Clarence. Dress her down, man. Pull her aside. Dress her down. I mean, how does this guy sit on any argument about the January 6th uh, riots in the Capitol or any cases dealing with the 2020 election? He can't sit in on any of these arguments. He has to recuse himself. Even if he never speaks to his idiot wife uh, about this stuff, the appearance of impropriety is there, and you can't do that when you're a Supreme Court judge. You have to appear that you're independent, that you're not you know, subjected to undue influence. But his own wife is crazy. She's the craziest conspiracy theorist anywhere. And she's like Yoko Ono here. He's got to dress her down, got to shut her up. Biden is imploding every day. Can't we go one day without our side screwing up as well? I don't think that's asking a lot, is it? Now, I'm going to uh, shift dramatically now, because as I said, I just kind of wrote up some thoughts for this morning, for this morning's show, and I'm going to talk about the handling of the case of the young woman who was charged in New York with shoving that old uh, voice coach into the cement, into the sidewalk, and she smacked her head and she died a few days later. If you're in New York, you surely have heard in the news about this. It was an 87-year-old voice coach, and she was pushed face first onto a sidewalk by some young woman, supposedly. And there's video of it, and the woman who supposedly did it stayed there and watched as an ambulance picked up this old woman, treated her, and picked her up. And then she got into a physical fight with her boyfriend at the scene. Later, her picture was posted all over the news because they could track her down going through the subway and they got a crystal clear picture of her and it was all over the news and she immediately closed every social media account and she got rid of her cell phone, which is consciousness of guilt. And they'll try to use that, the government against her in the case. The defense lawyer will surely say that she was freaking out, that she was public enemy number one and she was hiding because of that. It wasn't because she was, thought she was guilty. Anyway, the police got a tip as to who she was in the video, and they go to her parents' house to arrest her, but the father lies and says that she's not there, didn't know where she was, even though apparently she was hiding there. And then a lawyer gets involved and makes it so much worse, if that's even possible, because it's a pretty ugly case as it is, and he makes it so much worse after surrendering her to the police. Now, the first thing he did is he claimed that the woman, his client, was only charged because she was rich and white. That was mistake number one. And there's a lot of mistakes, but that's mistake number one. 
except that the victim was an 87-year-old white woman who the defendant supposedly called a bitch before smashing her to the ground. Again, she was white. So now we've got the lawyer claiming racism when a white person harms another white person? That she was only charged because she was white? This makes no sense. If the the white defendant had harmed a black person, then maybe the evidence in the case was weak. I can see saying, you know, maybe the, the white defendant was unfairly charged. I mean, you're also blasting a black district attorney. But the evidence was pretty clear. I mean, she got pushed down into the ground. She smashed her skull, broke it, and died. So where was the unfairness about the color of this, or lack of color of his client's skin? And it's not exactly, this is kind of a Jussie Smollett situation. You don't want to be creating like, you know, like a race war. That's not good. People aren't happy with that. Potential jurors in New York, they're not happy with that. And then he he said, the lawyer said that his client was overcharged, that pushing the woman, the old woman hard to the ground face first, wasn't the same as pushing someone in front of a cliff or pushing someone in front of a moving train. I mean, he's right. It's not the same. There's only one problem. And this is a problem with many lawyers. Sometimes they don't know the law when they open their mouths. An elderly woman is hit to the ground, knocked down, and smashes her head and dies a few days later. The person who did this was not charged with murder, just manslaughter and assault. Now, here's the law in New York, and you tell me if you think that this fulfills the mandate for murder. A person is guilty of murder in the second degree when, with intent to cause the death of another person, he causes the death of such person. Now, that could be because apparently the woman, before she died, the victim said that the, the, the defendant called her a bitch before shoving her into the ground. So they could have charged a, a murder charge here. You push an old woman face first into the sidewalk. Can it be proven that she intended to cause the death of the old woman? You know, maybe because of the bitch comment, maybe not. Had she been charged with murder, you could at least claim possibly it's an overcharge, but she wasn't. If anything, it's an undercharge. And here's the law for manslaughter, which is what she was charged with. A person is guilty of manslaughter in the first degree when, with intent to cause serious physical injury to another person, he causes the death of such person. Doesn't that sound like what happened? You're calling someone a bitch and you're pushing her into the ground? face first into cement, doesn't that seem that you want to cause serious physical injury and whoopsie, the victim died? It's exactly what happened. And yet the lawyer doesn't understand and thinks that, you know, the woman was charged with murder. He doesn't get it. I mean, I don't know if he was absent that three months in law school and they taught murder. Again, this is what the lawyer said in court. Not knowing the law, his client pushed this woman hard to the ground, face first. This was not the same as pushing someone in front of a cliff or pushing someone in front of a moving train. We get it. As I said, had his client pushed the old woman in front of a cliff or in front of a moving train, she would have clearly intended for the old woman to die and she would have been charged with murder, but she was not charged with murder. She was charged with manslaughter. She just wanted to cause serious physical injury and death resulted. Now, normally, if you're the parents of this young woman, you're horrified because of the bad press. If it's possible to get worse press from what your daughter may have done, you'd fire the lawyer lawyer instantly because he doesn't know the law. And he made sure that the entirety of the world also would know that he doesn't know the law. 
And then he tried to turn this into a race issue when everyone involved is white. So that made no sense. Now, the lawyer then claimed that his lawyer, his client was only charged because she was rich. That's what he said at the beginning because of her socioeconomic class. Her father owns a septic tank company and lives in a very modest home. There's pictures of it all over the internet. This, this is not a wealthy family. They're so rich, according to the defense lawyer, yet they couldn't post $500,000 in bail for days, and their daughter had to rot on Rikers Island. Then when that didn't work, the lawyer came out and said, no, she's not rich. Then she grew up, you know, not spoiled, not wealthy. So every day there's a different story. Now, there's articles all over New York, and there's one in the New York Daily News, why people hate lawyers, and it's about this lawyer and the idiocy that came out of his mouth. Not all of it that I described, but the part about trying to claim that it was a race issue and that the woman was overcharged. And the bad thing about it is that you've got this lawyer attacking a black district attorney. And as I said, there's no basis when it's a white on white crime. And why should the defendant, this young woman, as, as despicable as she may be, if she's guilty, why should she have the entirety of the city wanting to murder her because of her lawyer's big, stupid mouth? Now, the important thing to the lawyer clearly is just to get into the newspapers and get his picture taken. And you can sense that if you actually look at the pictures, he's got a hat on, he's got a silk pocket square that matches the tie, the whole nine yards. He's got it all. You know, you got this really ugly case. The people of New York hate the uh, woman that you're representing, but uh, because you're an idiot, but you've got your pocket square, you've got the vest, you've got the jacket, you've got the coat you've got the pocket square you've got the pocket watches probably hanging you're really you're a real real fucking dandy like that really helps this poor woman the parents are, i'm sure are terrified right now and they're and probably clueless to some extent so they won't fire the lawyer even though there has to be a part of them that knows that their daughter has been badly damaged even more than the crime itself that was charged because now the city thinks that you know she's trying to incite a, a race war how about just Shutting your mouth until you can actually think of something coherent to say to the press first. And I'll compare it to the Gotti case um, when I had it in 2004. Every word that came out of my mouth was measured to achieve one thing, which was to get our theme of the defense that he had withdrawn from the mafia out to the public. Every interview that I did was carefully planned for the same goal. I didn't care about how this was going to make me look. I wasn't dressing up like a dandy. You know, I didn't, I didn't have my, my bald head waxed, you know, for the press to see how, what a dandy I was because the way I figured it, if I win this case, I'm going to get all the success I could ever dream of. I'm not going to get it just from getting my puss on TV or in the newspapers. Now, the final thing to talk about, when I save the worst for last is uh, Biden's trip to Europe last week to Poland, to rally NATO and, and all of Europe against Russia for their disastrous war with the Ukraine or against the Ukraine. Just an, an unmitigated disaster was this trip. Biden is getting destroyed on liberal talk shows now all over the weekend. And, and what did he do that was so bad? He actually used his brain to tell him what to think and say. And that was a huge mistake. He went off script. And when he was left to his own devices, he nearly started World War III. He's that senile. He's that demented. He's that impaired. For real. He said when he was referring to uh, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. 
This man cannot remain in power. He was clearly referring to regime change, which is a major escalation. We're not talking about Iran here. We're talking about Russia. They got nukes. They're a major world power. We want these lunatics in Russia thinking that we want to take out their leader. They've got dirty bombs. They have cyber attacks in their arsenal. And according to Biden, just a week earlier, they're going to use them against us. Does any sane person think that threatening to remove Putin? How are you going to remove him, Joe? You're going to assassinate him? How else do you remove him? Does anybody think that this helps the chances of a peace deal between Russia and, and the Ukraine? Naturally, as soon as uh, Biden said this unscripted idiocy, an anonymous Biden aide told reporters that, quote, the president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change. Again, this is what he said. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That spin was ridiculous to say that he wasn't looking for regime change. He just went off script and he said what he was thinking. Next, Biden was asked Thursday about mounting Western concerns that Putin may use chemical weapons against the Ukraine to, to break the stalemate in the war. Quote, it would trigger a response in kind, Biden told reporters at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. That's clearly meaning that we would use chemical weapons against Russia if Russia used them against the Ukraine? First, it's a violation of international law. And then that was walked back as well by the administration. And it was stated that there is no red line if Putin uses chemical weapons because America learned its lesson with Obama when uh, he was president and said that we would intervene in Syria if Assad, the butcher of, uh, of Syria, used chemical weapons against his own people. Well, he did, and we did nothing in response because Obama. Finally, Biden told the American troops in Poland on Friday that they will witness the bravery of Ukrainians fighting off Russia's invasion when you're there. Except our troops are never going to the Ukraine to fight for the Ukrainians. So another massive mistake, you know, he had previously said that the U.S. must stay out of uh, the conflict over there to avoid triggering World War III. So what, what Biden is doing is he's just saying what's in his mind, or perhaps it was discussed with AIDS. Russia sees this. They have to be mortified and, and, and nervous because what else uh, could, you know, he be thinking? He's saying what he thinks. And the bottom line is that he's an utter embarrassment to our country. He doesn't understand what he's saying, and we're a laughingstock. At least Trump was coherent. Oh, and by the way, Biden said on Thursday that there's going to be food shortages in America due to the sanctions we placed on Russia. They produce what we buy, apparently. His spokesperson didn't like that at all. So this is another own goal that uh, his people had to clean up. That ginger demon, that uh, abortion, Jen Psaki, had to clean up that mess and she said, while we're not expecting a food shortage here at home, completely opposite to what Biden said, we do anticipate that higher energy fertilizer, wheat, and corn prices could impact the price of growing and purchasing critical fuel supply, food supplies for countries around the world. Now, the fertilizer prices and oil prices we know are going straight up, and that, that's going to be passed on to us, and we're just going to continue to pay higher prices while your income is going to be eaten away. All the prices are going up, and all of this is Biden's fault. It's all under his watch. He's utterly clueless. He can't even speak correctly. You voted for him. You get what you deserve. 
We're projecting weakness to the world. We're begging third world leaders and terrorists for oil, for fertilizer, for food. We're begging a guy, the, the head of Venezuela, who's under indictment in the Southern District of New York for narco trafficking. We're begging Iran, the world's worst sponsor of Muslim terror, for oil. This is what we're doing. Gas is up. Every food item is up in price. Every consumer product. We cannot afford three more years of this. And if he dies, we've got Kamala Harris with the shrieking and the cackling and the giggling and the affirmative action higher because that's what she is. So I wish I could tell you something positive, but I can't. I guess the positive is that I'm going to Disney in a couple of months and that's all I got for you this week. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can uh, find me on Spotify. You can find me on uh, Apple Podcasts. You name it. I'm there wherever you find your podcast. You can also go to beyondthelegallimit.com if you want to send me an email. Any comments you might have, just feel free. Thanks for tuning in.